We're in the middle of Adventure Month here on the Retro Hour podcast, where all this month we're celebrating the art of point-and-click adventure games, the new amazing book from our good friends at Bitmap Books, and it's out right now. Now, we're going to tell you more about the book in the next 15 minutes, but check out our website, theretrohour.com, get a good look at it, and get your hands on a copy, either by winning it or buying it now. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 143, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. Welcome back, handsome Joe. Woo-woo-woo. I know why Joe's back this week. It's because the Christmas quiz is coming up, isn't it, it's in a couple of months? Up. Yeah, He's got to get his practice in. I've got to keep fresh, you know, I've got to keep the knowledge going. And also, you know, we will probably have like a gaming stream soon as well. So I just need to get back in there with you guys really just so I'm involved (laughs) (laughs) it has been so busy recently I mean I'm actually glad I said this last week you know to be coming in doing the podcast have a break from house moving I know you moved house in the last couple of years I didn't realise how long it takes yeah it's a a big deal isn't it you know you think oh this will take a couple of months or whatever like bam all of a sudden after six months you're just there two three weeks just moving crap about (laughs) well uh, Dan you kind of introduced yourself to the neighbourhood in a a, a very innovative way (laughs) well yeah this happened last night Um, I was going out with a mate I'd moved some stuff from my old flat the last of my kind of old computers and stuff that I still had there. The bric-a-brac. Yeah, exactly. The, the last little bits. <laughs> so um, there's a few like, you know, CD-ROMs and an Acorn Electron that I had in a box in the back of my car. Took a few boxes out, got into my new house and the internet had been fitted during the day. Virgin mm. had been around. It started working. I was like, all right, got a bit distracted. Forgot about this box of games and this um, Acorn Electron I left out in the car park, essentially. So <laughs> came out in my car in the dark half past seven, reversed the car, heard like a crunch I said, what was that? I thought it must have been something in the boot. Drove off. My missus then texted me about an hour later saying the neighbours just walked up to the door, said he's just drove over this computer. Does it belong to you? So I've got an Acorn Electron that's been driven over twice now. So. <laughs> and you had all retro goodness sprayed all over the street. Dan's yeah. here. There's a load of, C- of retro games. load of CD-ROMs, uh, a computer and a book about disco music. So uh, that was all left all over the road Brilliant. outside. Were so. they quite, you know, snotty about it as well? Like, uh, oh... Yeah, welcome to the neighbourhood. <laughs> so, things can only get better. But Look yeah. at that young ruffian. <laughs> I'll, his, I'll blame it on the tide. With his high-tech acorn computers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the guy must be like, what the hell? Who are yeah. these people? <laughs> so anyway, we are here, and now that I've got my internet fitted, I'm going to be doing a live stream. Excellent, because I did one last week, which was really good fun, Simon the Sorcerer. Yeah, I love yeah. that game. So oh, much fun. It, was, it was great, and having Chris Barry doing all the Red Dwarf kind of jokes on there and stuff, you know... It was excellent. We've been doing these, like, well, this will be the third one coming up because at the moment we're doing Adventure Month. Now, we're we're celebrating this amazing book, The Art of Point-and-Click Adventure Games by Bitmap Books. Get your hands on that, Joe. It's very large. Like, just to give you an example, that's me me just putting it down on the desk. I was walking through town with it earlier and I was holding it and I kind of felt like a preacher. (laughs) You know? <laughs> no, I'd be worried that somebody might stop me and go, what are you doing with this weapon? You know? It's very large. <laughs> yeah, but you could have stood on the corner of the Market Square and like, you know, um, just read out bits about Leisure Suit Larry. Yeah, yeah. Really yeah. Really good. Absolutely. So this book is really, it's a visual celebration of point-and-click adventure games and covering, you know, the classics we've been talking about over the last few weeks. Stuff like Simon the Sorcerer is in there, Monkey Island, of course, Maniac Mansion, uh, even stuff like Mist in there as well, The Dig, Discworld, Blade Runner. Of course, we had um, an episode all about that with Lewis Castle last week. So we are bringing you some of the contributors to the book on the podcast and also giving you a chance to win a copy of this book as well. Or if you'd like to help out the podcast, we'd have a little link that you can use to buy your own copy of it. A lot of people have been actually tweeting in and leaving comments on Facebook saying, as soon as I heard it, I've gone out and bought the book and sending us pictures of them with the book. Yeah, that's really awesome. And today's guest is absolutely awesome. We've got Paul Conway and he's featured in the book and he's done a new point-and-click retro-style game, which is called The Dark Side Detective. And he's just had a Kickstarter as well, which we're going to talk about. Yeah, and he's actually worked on over 100 games, uh, even going back to stuff like The Sims and Theme Park as well. Really interesting guy. And, yeah, what he's going to be talking about, I mean, this week it's kind of going to be like the rebirth of point-and-click adventure games we're going to kind of look at. You know, stuff like Thimbleweed Park we've had in the last couple of years. Yeah, and some interesting angles about it as well. Are people getting retro fatigue? Yeah, yeah. Cause he's a pixel artist as well as, like, 3D and that kind of stuff. So the game The Dark Side Detective... Number two is actually on Kickstarter right now. It's been funded, but the Kickstarter finishes today at the time the show goes out. So you could just get in there if you listen nice and early in the morning. But he's going to be our special guest. Paul Conway will be coming up on the Retro Hour podcast in around 20 minutes from now. Now, this weekend, I think I'm going to play Monkey Island.
Oh, yes, Monkey Island's great. I can't decide, though. Do I do the special edition with the talking or the original? I don't know. I, I like the talking one because basically the talking guy just did a lot of action and I just sat there and drank tea. Yeah. But <laughs> the original one, you could get more into it and do a bit more commentary. It's, yeah, you, it's up to you, I guess. You had to do the uh, the voices when he did Police Quest, though, didn't you, and all the accents? Yeah, I had so, to uh... read it and do all the voices, <laughs> and that was bad. So I'm going to be doing that. Um, it'll be actually the first stream I've done from my new place, so I hope my internet holds up. Uh, that'll be on Sunday night at 6 o'clock. We'll be doing that on Facebook, on uh, YouTube, uh, Twitter. Yeah, Periscope on Twitter as well. Yeah, so I'll make sure all of those are in the show notes at theretrohour.com. And our website is the same place that you need to go if you'd like to buy a copy of the Art of Point and Click Adventure Games book. You'll be really helping out the podcast if you use our link. And also while you're there as well, you can enter our competition to win your own copy of the book. Now, we've been doing a draw every week throughout Adventure Month. And well done this week, Ashley Kingston. You are this week's winner. So a copy of the book will be in the post for you over the next couple of weeks. And we have got a new round of the competition running right now. So if you'd like to win this week's, all you've got to do is leave your details at theretrohour.com. You're getting a bit distracted by the book there, Joe. I was massively. I was going through it. I literally opened it. was weird. I opened it and I opened it straight out to Discworld. And I was like, oh, I love Discworld. And then you mentioned Discworld, like the instant I opened it. And then I was going through it. And then I was very pleased to see that uh, it's got information about The Walking Dead Telltale game yeah. in here, which I've always considered a point and click game, and some people say it isn't. So there yeah, you go. There we go. I feel quite smug. <laughs> <laughs> and it's in the book. <laughs> and last week I mentioned that there wasn't two older disc world games. There was. Uh, Glenn Corpus actually corrected me. So cheers for that. All right. We've had on the show before. Yeah. yeah. Go, Glenn. Now, also, if you'd like to support this podcast, another way that you can do that, I mean, there are lots of ways. You could, like, leave us a nice review on your favorite podcast service, give us a little thumbs up, a little five star rating. That always helps. Or you could even help us out with the running of the show. Now, we do have uh, a little tip jar on the front page of the retrohour.com for making a little donation in there. Any amount, you will find your place in by far the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming, the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Just like this week, Roman Chispat, Scott Fairclough, Joshua Malone, and Timothy Mallard. And you can do the same. All you've got to do is nip onto our website to leave a little tip and help us continue into our third year of the Retro Hour podcast very soon. I can't believe that's crazy, there. isn't it? Uh, you'll find it all on the front page of theretrohour.com. Now, thinking back to the early days of this show, um, we did have a guest who was one of our favourite guests that we've ever had on the podcast. I've, he's the only guest that we've actually got on the news section as well yeah. because he was so good fun and uh, such a nice bloke. Now, we're talking about Ben Daglish, a uh, very famous Commodore 64 and Amiga musician, worked on many platforms and... We invited him on the show because we've both been big fans of his music for many years. And turns out he actually lived quite locally to us, didn't he? Yeah, he lived in uh, Matlock, which was a little bit of a drive away, to be yeah. fair. But, uh, you know, he actually came out and met us on a snowy day. It was fantastic. Yeah, he drove here in, like, yeah, blizzard-conditioned snow. It was really, really cold that day. Um, and he came in, and he wanted to support... I mean, you've got to remember, this was, like, what, episode 17? And I think then we, we got, like, you know, a thousand listeners to that episode. Yeah. We were like, wow, that's loads, you know what I mean? It was like... <laughs> And he really did support this show by, you know, not only giving his time up, but coming in. And like you said, he hung around and actually did the news section with us as well. He just wanted to be involved and, yeah. you know, show a bit of support to us. So we've always really appreciated Ben for that. But um, it was very sad to read that last week, actually, Ben passed away. Yeah, we actually found out as we came back from recording the yeah. episode. So a lot of people were like, why haven't you mentioned it? And we wanted to do a proper tribute to him because, you know, he's worked on amazing games like Last Ninja and Deflector. And- yeah. You know, some of his music's just amazing, and uh, people that have worked with him and the tributes have been great. So Mark Knight, uh, TDK, who we've had on the show before, he played a lot with Ben. So they actually um, had Mark Knight perform at Revision, which is the big demo party this year, and he's done a tribute to Ben Douglish, and we're going to have that on the um, show notes. But also, um, we had Chris Abbott on recently who ran c64 audio yeah and they're doing that big symphony as well um they've actually released a tribute album called sid effects 2 uh, that's all free to download and that's lots of ben's music and it's in mp3 and flac format as well you can download that for free yeah so yeah i mean very sad news rest in peace ben um what a legend just the outpouring of like love for him on Facebook and Twitter and everything I've seen over the last week has been incredible Yeah, as well. it just proves how much of a good guy he was. Absolutely. So if you want to download those and uh, a little tribute to Ben Daglish, maybe even check out the episode we did with him as well because he was such a fun guy. I'll put all that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, Blockbuster. There's a 
brand that we don't see on the high street anymore. <laughs> yeah, Blockbuster. Uh, they, they were doing something very interesting. There's a nice article on Hackaday. And uh, have you guys heard of New Leaf Entertainment? Yeah, it does ring a bell. So... Is it so? Is New Leaf Entertainment is that the company that were kind of behind this, like in partnership with Blockbuster? Yeah. So what this was, it, it was a scheme, and the scheme was basically during launches and stuff, they would only have a limited supply of like Mortal Kombat carts mm-hmm. or something like yeah. that. So this was a way that <laughs> that Blockbuster so talk- could come. So we're of- talking like. Early 90s, kind of. Early 90s, yeah. but it went up to the PlayStation period. Oh, really? Yeah, so they were doing CD-ROMs and everything, mm-hmm. but Blockbuster had a way of copying its own kind of titles, and they would flash uh, EEPROMs, and they'd be on these little carts, and it was actually under the brand Game Factory. Yeah, so I've you Ravi was telling me about it earlier on, and I was like, that rings a bell, and I'm sure I've seen a, the YouTube of the Gaming Historian cover these before. So essentially... So what were Blockbuster doing? They were burning, copying games and burning them onto cartridges well, well, it with was their a, own technology. Yeah, it was a full system. So first yeah. they'd have like a center that you could go and you could look at the display unit and see the game, yeah. like 30 seconds of game footage or something Actually like that. Actually see it working. This is legit, guys. Yeah. It works. <laughs> and, and, and then they'd kind of print the cartridges if they ran out or... Yeah. You know, they'd also print DVDs off with four times speed CD burners. Cutting edge <laughs> technology there. It essentially meant they were never out of stock of a, a title yeah. that you might want to rent, essentially. It's a pretty good idea, I guess. That's pretty yeah. smart. If I remember rightly, there's two versions. There's the green one and then either the blue or yellow one. I'm not too sure. And one was one had more memory than the other, depending on the, like, the size of the Mega Drive game. And that's it. And they say, you know, there was there was a Nintendo equivalent of this as well yeah, oh, was that it? ran in Japan. Oh, okay. Yeah, and uh, the problem was when stuff like the um, virtual uh, fighter and the stuff that needed the FX chip, you mm-hmm. know, the Super FX chip, yeah. they they couldn't recreate that. So. No. Well, it doesn't even work now if you've got like um, you know, you know, like an EverDrive with a flash cart. A lot of that, I think maybe the more modern ones have that emulation built in. But yeah, a lot of them, because you haven't got the Super FX tube, you couldn't run stuff like Star Fox and that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's pretty cool. I mean, it's kind of like, they've described it here as like the one-hour photo of physical media, which I guess it kind of was. Pretty cool idea. I mean, t- today we do take it for granted that because everything's digital now, you forget how heartbreaking it was to walk into like a video shop and want to rent that film and it wasn't yeah, there. It wasn't there, yeah. I yeah, mean, that, that was it. When the videos would be rented out, you know, there'd be a blank space, wouldn't they? Yeah. So they had to fill it. I mean, what's crazy is what it only takes, I'm reading it here, it only took 45 seconds, you know, on average to kind of get that game, to, you know, copy that game over, which really, that's that's crazy for like 1993 I'm reading here 45 seconds like that's so quick for back then I'm like that's just blowing my mind sorry <laughs> like, I, I wonder how many of the blockbuster employees there were at the back door like you know here giving copies to the mate yeah yeah absolutely I'm, I'm sure that never happened well you know there's been there's been this whole thing about CEX uh, photocopying manuals yeah, and oh, stuff really? and uh, making their own CEX manuals and saying that's... oh the game includes a manual and it's just a photocopy so you know they've been doing this kind of thing for years these companies <laughs> <laughs> and to get that hot cart home, you're like, what the heck is this? <laughs> yeah. Well, there's another cool little article that you found on Hackaday as well. Um, kind of, you know, continuing on from that, we're talking about Sega here. A device called the Sega Terra Drive. Now, I've never heard of this. Yeah, so this was one of those, like, PC and Mega Drive combos. Yeah, so Mega PC by Amstrad, I remember that one. Yeah. And that was essentially like a, a DOS slash Windows PC um, that you had a little cover on the front, you'd slide it over, and there'd be a Mega Drive cartridge yeah. slot in there as well. you put a game in, and the monitor would change from the PC to the Mega Drive that was inside it. But this was actually a proper Sega product. Yeah, it was released by Sega, and it, it, it was the dream machine, apparently. But... Um, they did a few mistakes. It was released in Japan, and it had a really cool feature, which was, uh, you know, it extended the video modes, so uh, VGA and composite was supported as well. So right. you could probably get, like, VGA output on a Mega Drive, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And then they released it, but they released it with, like... Uh, 286 and how old's the 286 done? God, it? 1982, I think it came out. So, like yeah. a decade before this machine. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And uh, that kind of put it behind because it was only at 10 megahertz. Yeah. So, you can't really run much on that. Now, there's one of these in existence that people know about, and it's owned by a guy called Ronnie. And he's actually upgraded it uh, to a 486 at 66 megahertz. So, imagine you could probably play Doom. 
well, alongside <laughs> playing get Doom like, on it. <laughs> first yeah. things first. <laughs> we can get Quake and all that on there. I'd imagine you know the four eight six. Yeah, that, that's pretty cool. So he's actually upgraded it though. I mean, I imagine there will be a lot of people going, "Oh, it's the only one known in existence now. What are you doing messing around with it?" Yeah. Well, <laughs> also says he's you should say that it, when he so. said that it's the only one we know of, and he's modded it. My, like, I started screaming like, Whoa! like, but then I was like, "Oh, I guess it's computer. Like people do that a lot with kind of you know, but." <laughs> well, it did get a general release in Japan, but apparently it was a massive flop. I don't yeah. think there might be more of them out there. But it, it's weird to think that probably a lot of them like ended up in skips or just like yeah, recycling yeah. plants or whatever. It's you know the amount of stuff you wish you kept. Just part of Sega's weird and wonderful library of like you know they've got like the JVC Sega Mega Drives in America. The Dreamcast Scuba TV. Yeah. <laughs> what was the other one? The um, the Mega Drive, which was built into a karaoke machine in Japan as well. <laughs> I forget what that's called, but, you know, it's just oh. part of all that kind of weirdness. We need one of those for this year's Christmas party, don't we? That'd Absolutely. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, you know, Nintendo have kind of got, like, um, I think we talked about it on the show about a couple of years ago, actually, and there was a video where it kind of showed, I think it was Nintendo, have got, like, a kind of a museum in their offices where they've got, like, something of one of everything they've ever made. Yeah. And there's a little walk around. What if Sega have got, like, some kind of equivalent? You think they probably would have. I don't know. This Nintendo says real family-friendly, like, you know, we're really proud and nostalgic of the products we've made and, you know, we really like to keep hold of these things, this memorabilia. I can imagine Sega just being like, I'll keep chucking it in the bin. <laughs> like, it just kind of gives it, That's just the kind of vibe I get from them sometimes. I can also <laughs> imagine the virtual boy being at the back gathering dust. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no one's playing on that We'll anymore. put that one around the corner. <laughs> yeah. So if you want to read more about that, I'll put it in the show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, the Internet Archive is a site that we've we've covered quite a lot on this show in the in the past. We even had uh, Jason Scott on, didn't we? Yeah, year? yeah. Uh, talking about it. A really good place, especially now, because so many of the websites that hosted ROMs are going. I mean, I was having a chat to my mate at work, and he's quite into retro gaming. And he was saying the other day he wanted to get some Dreamcast games, and he, he couldn't find the ROMs anywhere, or the ISOs. He's looking all over, and he said, I oh, know places, but yeah. <laughs> and there are a lot going. Yeah, there's, there's a few last bastions of hope. But uh, yeah, I think the internet's changed as well to the point that you can play these games online yeah. in a window or in a browser so there's no need to actually I'm playing Aliens as we speak <laughs> <laughs> no need to actually get the emulator now what they've been doing at Internet Archive is they've been dumping absolutely huge collections of stuff and they put all the Sega stuff up didn't they or was it all the Nintendo, Nintendo? Yeah. yeah didn't that... last long <laughs> <laughs> they got took down straight away but this one's been up for a month which is uh software library of the C64 with 8,878 um, titles in it. So it's pretty much a full Commodore 64 collection. Yeah, and yeah. it goes up to 2012, so it's got like releases that were coming out then. That's pretty cool. And, and you can play a lot of them in the browser. Uh, all of them, I think. Oh, yeah. That's nuts, isn't it? There goes productivity at work. Yeah, <laughs> I was just thinking then, like, I should probably send this to myself at work. But... <laughs> work email. Yeah. That's cool. And I think archive.org is such an important resource. You know, it's a lot of this kind of stuff gets forgotten and... You know, it's good that they do preserve it. And I think with, you know, the Commodore 64 as well, the fact that a lot of the kind of companies that made those games probably don't exist anymore and no one really knows. Or well, well I, think, I think the C64 is a bit more sorted in, like, who owns the rights and stuff than, yeah. like, Atari or Amiga or whatever's going on there because the C64 Mini came out with, like, loads of games already yeah. on there. There's been C64 emulators for years, hasn't there? So. Yeah, and it's. Uh, I love the fact that you can just play a lot of these games in browsers and stuff like that. You know, I think <laughs> isn't there some website where I can't remember which one it is now where you can play retro games and it's kind of got like a, a boss mode. So oh, really? If it comes behind you, you press a button on the keyboard and Excel pops up or something <laughs> like that. So that's a pretty good idea. They should incorporate that on archive.org. Yeah, press, you press spacebar five times in a row and it's just like it comes up. That'd <laughs> Emergency be great. mode, yeah. 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 Now, one thing that I didn't ever think I'd see an archive of is uh, something that we all, I think it's fair to say, we all hated back in the day. And that was banner ads. Oh my God, my whole surfing through like the early 2000s was just attacked by banner ads wherever you would go. And they'd also have like sound on them as well. And oh God, it's horrible. Yeah, and it'd be um, top of a website, normally made in Flash, weren't they actually? Um, yeah, but then pop-up windows were invented and suddenly it went yeah. mental. Actually, it's more annoying a pop-up window, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but you'd see them, you know, like rotating and the Flash up in front yeah. of you and like some really weird ones as well. I mean, there's actually a guy who's took it upon himself now that Flash has been discontinued. 
he thinks it's important to preserve this element of the internet. <laughs> Some may this argue... It's a historic but... part of our history. <laughs> yeah, a, a, a specific part, which is online casinos and lower my bills ads. So, like, how to lower your bills. I mean, this is quite interesting because I forget the name of the guy, but I recently read an article saying about how the guy who invented the pop-up ad, yeah. like, regrets it massively and he is very sorry for inventing it and then there's this dude here who's like I want to preserve this part of the internet and make sure there's a website dedicated to it well there is a great podcast actually um, called the um, Internet History Podcast mm. I don't know if you've heard that some really good episodes and actually I think that he may be a guest on one of them I heard yeah. it a while ago and yeah he's talking about the process of like oh, we, can, we may as well do advertising on here well why are we talking about this because he says he kind of has a collection of lower Bill's ads, and uh, he has about 600 of them, and they're from 2003 to 2004. But then he aims to collect Sonic the Hedgehog uh, pop-ups and flash <laughs> kind of advertising. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess there is, you know, archives of every other kind of... You know, you go on YouTube, you can watch all Sega TV ads and yeah, that kind true. of thing. So. Maybe you could have, like... Part, isn't it? Like, I wonder if there's somebody out there with an archive of old adverts, TV adverts. Like. Oh, absolutely is, yeah. <laughs> They've got to make a, like, early 2000s browser that you can go on and just pop-ups come everywhere and it's awful <laughs> gifts. <laughs> Bonsai buddy dancing in the corner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or Gator, do you remember that? Oh, that used to be annoying. But you, actually, you mentioned adverts then, and when we'd been moving house recently... I did find a big stack of old videotapes of like TV shows that I recorded like back in the oh, mid-90s yeah. and early 2000s. And I thought, I won't throw them out. I'll try and get a video and like see what's on them. I mean, it Loads might be... porn. <laughs> <laughs> Vintage porn. <laughs> but it would be, you know, just seeing the old TV adverts might be pretty cool yeah. again. So, yeah. I mean, I guess you can become nostalgic for anything given time, yeah, I, guess. I guess. Including um, early popper bands. So if you want to uh, check those out at your leisure. Who'd have thought we'd voluntarily go onto our website and look at old popper bands? <laughs> so we will put that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Well, thank you for checking out the news this week. Of course, we are in the middle of the Retro Hour Adventure Month. Now, next week is going to be our final episode in Adventure Month. Hope you're enjoying it. Make sure you look out for my live stream. I'm going to be playing Monkey Island. I haven't played Monkey Island through for quite a while. So uh, You're going to have to get I some help, aren't you? I might watch this and just <laughs> just watch you fail like so badly <laughs> yeah no, you, you can have a walkthrough up on your machine and then just, uh, send, send me some tips on Facebook yeah. Messenger I look like I'm an expert it'll be great yeah, but I might need your help so if you want to watch out I'm going to be doing it around 6pm uh, this coming Sunday we'll put links in our show notes along with everything else and of course while you're there as well make sure you have a look at this book The Art of Point and Click Adventure Games from our friends at Bitmap Books nip onto our website you can win or buy a copy on there and it will be signed by the founder and creative director of the publisher Bitmap Books Sam Dyer so you'll find all of that on our website at theretrohour.com. Well, let's get into this week's guest, talking about the rebirth of point-and-click adventure games, making them in the 21st century, Paul Conway. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time to welcome this week's special guest as we continue Adventure Month on the Retro Hour podcast. Welcome to the show, Paul Conway. Hello, and thanks for having me. No problem. All our pleasure. Now, before we talk about um, your titles like The Dark Side Detective and the new one, Beyond the Dunes, let's get a bit of your background. I mean, do you kind of remember back to your earliest gaming memory? Where did it all begin? My very, very first game was um, was one of those uh, like small like tabletop uh, arcade machines um, for Defender. You know, like little plastic toys, like batteries in, you could play like a real bad version of Defender on it. Oh, wow. Yeah, my sister got it for Christmas, not me. So I used to kind of get to look over her shoulders and look at her play it. And occasionally I was allowed on it for just a, just a few minutes. Like back in the 80s, you know, batteries are quite expensive. So, you know, they, you know, it was golden to actually have any time on it. Were you uh, more of a console or computer kid? <laughs> I'd say probably more a console kid, but I kind of jumped between the two. Like, uh, like the Commodore 64 was a big computer in our house for a long time. Until eventually we got a Super NES and uh, and a Game Boy in the house. Were there any uh, titles that stood out for you on the C64? Big ones that kind of that I remember uh, having a big effect on me were um, were it was EXO. There was a, it was kind of a, like it was basically R type, but it was kind of underwater. Um, Mist uh, or Myth Myth that was pretty awesome. Then there was uh, like the whole Barbarian series because that was pretty hardcore for kids to be kind of playing. You know, we could decapitate you know other people. And there was kind of an old um, sort of wireframe polygon 3D game called Mercenary, where you used to kind of you have to kind of spaceships and fly around it's like just kind of very basic environment of like blue sky, green ground, and wireframe for, for things. 
I, I had no idea what was going on in the game. I say if I played it now, I still wouldn't. But uh, I used to keep me enwrapped for, for hours and hours, just, just wandering around this place. And was that aesthetic like really appealing when you were a kid as well? I'd say it was, yeah. I, I think kind of, you know, like, the wireframe kind of sort of made it made it feel like kind of you know very futuristic and you know very sci-fi like because you know the, a lot of like old old sci-fi movies kind of used to have those kind of readouts those sort of visuals and never kind of showing anything kind of that was uh sort of you know 3d and computer like um so maybe i kind of got lost in that a bit but i think uh i was always more into the sprite stuff though because just a lot more at that at that level at that time it was a lot more uh it conveyed the reality of what you wanted it to be more like a character looked like a character rather than a green and white wireframe. So um, when was the point that you started getting into adventure games specifically? My first, like I had played like some of them on some buddies' computers like Zach McCracken and stuff like that. They're my friends like who had like Atari STs and, you know, uh, Amigas. So I kind of, I was, I was kind of aware of them but I never really got to fully enjoy them. And the first time I properly experienced an adventure game was actually on the playstation one when i played what's it called broken sword because my mind was blown because you know i had that, that level of fidelity the, the visuals that they had like even, even to this day broken sword one looks amazing but to play that and have all the, the fantastic audio that kind of the cd allowed uh, was brilliant and kind of when i when i got into that then I got my hands on the PC and then I started, you know, kind of traveling backwards in time and finding all the adventure games that I, I wanted to play. Yeah, you're right, because Broken Sword at the time, there was nothing else that was like like it, you know, especially with the level of detail in the cartoons. Yeah, for sure. I, I actually went to the um, the college where the guy on the background art went to, he was a teacher at it, uh, whose name escapes me right now, but the, uh, in Ballyferma College in Dublin, no like, uh, they reached out to him. And who done all the backgrounds for it? Like, because there was a, a Don Blute was a it was an animation studio that used to be in Ireland, and that, when that company disbanded, a lot of the teachers, uh, so a lot of the staff went off to become teachers in in Ballyferma College. So that's why I had that classic animation look. Like they literally had classical animators drawing those backgrounds. Um, I feel terrible now. I can't remember the guy's name, but I, I, I years later had gone to that college. Just coincidentally, I didn't know until like even after I finished college that the guy who done Broken Sword had gone to that college. No, no way. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know when you started going back and checking out like the back catalogue of adventure games, um, which ones really captured your imagination? So like, obviously, the, like the LucasArts stuff, like um, uh, like all the Monkey Islands and all, like they're all stand out. I think that's kind of like the the boilerplate answer for most people. But the stuff that really really stood out to me were kind of the more sort of adult and serious ones, like The Dig had a really big effect on me um beneath steel sky as well like both of them i love that they kind of had that very serious um approach to kind of sci-fi like it rather than like it wasn't just like uh you know invading aliens and you know blow up things like a lot of video games are at the time it was it kind of had like kind of took the pace that like kind of like classic movies like blade runner took you know, just kind of let you explore the world, let you let you find characters, let you find like uh, you know, find discover the mystery. Like I was, I was, I was really blown away by that. Actually, the the old Blade Runner game itself actually was one of them that I really loved. So I, ha- I have that big box here somewhere in my house right now. Um, that was a particularly fantastic game. I loved how it, how it rolled the dice at the start of the game, and it kind of like, it set who were replicants and who weren't. So every playthrough was genuinely a different experience to a certain level. Well, you mentioned the dig in there as well. I mean, that, you know, that's something else that we talked about in this podcast. That was kind of a Steven Spielberg movie that was kind of made into a video game, wasn't it? That was quite special. What was it about that game that you liked in particular? Well, actually, you know, it's, I think specifically that the fact that it was meant to be a movie script always kind of was fascinating to me. Like, because uh, I think probably it opened my imagination a lot with it to kind of imagine how it could have been as a movie, like, uh, see how that's, you know, how that world would have been presented um, in a movie back then. Um, but I did. I really liked that kind of um, the you know bizarre like you know transported across the galaxy. Kind of had that um, the you know Archie Clark kind of feel to it. Like kind of you know rendezvous with Rama, kind of you know very bizarre, far far removed kind of uh, world from ours. So I kind of I just felt like it leaned very well into into sort of classic fiction sci-fi. 
you know, like a like liter- literary sci-fi uh, more so than sort of action sci-fi. I think that's what particularly gripped me. Well, how did you get into the industry and what was the industry like in Ireland? Because we don't really hear much about the uh, computer games industry in Ireland, but we know there's a lot of good games coming from there. Um, well, the industry here is very, very small. It's um, like we're, we're decades behind where you guys are in the UK. You know, we have all the same technology, but there's just not a lot of us. We're still building up the the studios um like when i started years ago it was like i got into video games about 2005 i think there was a that was around the time when the old java mobile phones like the old nokia um, 3210s and all that um started to have video games on them and that kind of like low bar kind of allowed a lot of people to kind of start like becoming sort of bedroom coders like kind of classic 1980s kind of uh the british scene so a lot of small studios started to form out of some early successes there. And there was, there was a studio in Galway where I still live today um, that was called uh, Neffen Games. And uh, they just needed a pixel artist. Now, I, I'd studied to be a 3D artist and uh, the, all the studio jobs in Ireland that required 3D artists were, were already filled. Then I heard that the studio in Galway were looking for, um, like for a pixel artist. So overnight i faked the pixel art portfolio i literally just found out like what's the basic tools and how to do pixel art and mocked up about six or seven different screenshots of video games um and sent that in trying to get trying to get in the door luckily that they didn't spot how bad it was and they accepted me into the role galway seems to be a little kind of center for it at the moment i I went to visit uh, romero studios there and there was a few guys in the pubs hanging around that were responsible for the Ghost Recon games and stuff. So it seems to be a little kind of center in Ireland. Yeah. So I've been here um, about uh, probably about 14 years in Galway. And like just when I when I first moved here, there was no scene. Um, and the company I moved here to work with, like they collapsed after two years. So I freelanced free for like for many years. But then we started to kind of build a community up. Started to kind of get you know people meeting each other in, into local pub of course um, and started you know, kind of we started but we started to discover that there was a lot of developers around but and like nobody was connected so we kind of done our best to kind of start networking the community together and and now that like you know my own company formed from the from the, the basis of that um, the Romero Games um, like John and Brenda like I know them both very well I I, I helped them move here um, when they were looking to move here. And uh, I used to actually share an office with them for about a year. But they like they found that they were doing a tour of Ireland as part of a Brenda's Fulbright Fellowship, where she was kind of reviewing the the size and the, and issues with the scene here in Ireland. And I invited her to Galway to do a talk while she was here. And when her and John landed in Galway, they really liked it. They just found that it was a good, vibrant place. So they they moved here, set up studio, and they've they've about twenty odd people working for them now. It must have been uh, inspirational working with them as well. It was, yeah. I got to work with them on a game. Um, they they made a game that their son designed. Uh, he was twelve at the time. It's called a Gunman Taco Truck, hmm. and uh, they they just they wanted to do it as pixel art. And uh, I'm kind of one like the most most well known pixel artists in Ireland, and I knew them as well at the time. So it, you know, it kind of got me involved. And it was fun. It was it was an interesting project, kind of translating um, you know a young gamer's imagination into into graphics. And also trying to make it look like how I kind of remembered old games to look like. So kind of, if you look at it, it's very flat in the design. It's a, it's kind of like trying to trying to ape what old games look like more so than be what old games look like. Well, I know old games back then. You often use like D Paint on the Amiga was like an industry standard back in the the early nineties. Um, what kind of software were you using then to do this pixel art? Um, I usually jump between a piece of software called Graphic Scale and Photoshop. Um, in fact, I probably use Photoshop more than anything now just because I just find it more flexible for everything. To do, like, limiting the colors and all those kind of those uh, necess- necessary kind of evils from years ago, they're, they're not really there now. So I can kind of be, it can kind of stretch things a little further now. Um, so you can set Photoshop, Photoshop up very easy for, um, for making pixel graphics these days. Well, you worked on titles like uh, The Sims and Theme Park as well. So what was your involvement there? Um, so when I was freelancing, I was um, there was one company I used to work with quite a lot in uh, Denmark called Progressive Media, um, and they were doing a lot of work for hire for EA um, and other big studios at the time. So the, yeah, I got drafted in with them um, to work on Theme Park and The Sims. The Sims game was like it was an old Nokia game uh, or old Java phone game, so very limited, uh, 
sort of isometric pixel art style. And yeah, it was just interesting to play with the big brand to kind of, you know, bring all those sort of things, like those little iconic, you know, jewels above their heads and sort of, sort of fit them into sort of pixel art world. And also, like, you know, you're launching it and you know there's millions of people, you know, playing that game. Um, theme Park was was a lot of fun as well. Um, I kind of got to stretch my 3D legs a bit there. And because it was um, during the iPad smartphone era, like I was able to kind of really kind of push my art rather than sort of be so restricted that the old uh, Java phones used to restrict you by. Yeah, it was cool. I got to work on like lots of cute art, and then it was a big game. It launched, and you know, lots of people were talking about it when it came out. So you've worked on over a hundred games, which is a massive amount. Um, are there any like highlights or any kind of funny, funny situations that have arose from that? I've I've worked on a lot of games. Um, from people in the Middle East to people in you know all over the world, uh, North America, um, you know, Australia. Uh, I think I worked in a couple, people, for a couple of games for people in South America. Yeah, it's it's good. I mean, I, I, if you go back to my catalog, if you could find all of them, you'll probably find there's always like an avatar of me somewhere hiding in the games. Um, I always like to kind of I'd be bored working on the game, so I try to fit myself in somewhere. <laughs> the, I've, highlights uh i worked on a, an old adventure game years ago called mystery mania um that was an ea game as well actually uh it was kind of this sort of vector art style game about like uh, this little robot lost in a mansion um wandering around trying to solve puzzles in each room to kind of find it, you know it's lost memory that was a really nice game to work on I, I think i worked on that for about a year it was it was a you know it kept me employed for a long time but it was also just just a lovely you know very pleasant project to work on Another game I worked on, which was, was very successful, was a game called Leps World. Um, it's for an Austrian company called Nearby. Basically, it's Super Mario, but on mobile phone. And it was the first game I'd done that was like that went mega huge uh, for a small company. It's, it's like the series has been downloaded about like 200 million times. Like it's really big, really big success for the company. Like and I'd worked on really serious art house games and not throughout the years, and that was the first one that I had. Like I'd be meeting people. And they, you know, I normally if if, I, if they found that I worked on games, they'd ask what you work on, and if I rattle off a few of them, they'd never hear of it. But as soon as I mentioned Leps World, they knew it. Their kids knew it. Um, I design autographs uh, for kids because they like Leps World so much. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah. Well, I, say, I mean, we look back at those kind of you know the early kind of smartphones, um, like the Nokia phones and the, the Java phones you mentioned as well, and we kind of you know laugh a bit at them now, but they really did start. Um, a whole industry there, didn't they? It was kind of the rebirth of the the indie scene, I guess. I th- I, th- I think so. Yeah, it it um it lowered the barrier for entry for a lot of people. It's like a lot of people were able to cut their teeth making games and kind of reaching an audience, and you just couldn't before. Um, particularly the like the the Java phone days where they were probably more friendly to programmers and to our artists back then. Um, but the people didn't really make tons of money off it because like the the way the platform holders like say for example you were selling your game on a Vodafone store they'd sell the game for five dollars and you'd make 20 cent off it or something like that it was ridiculous the amount of money they, they, they took from it but then um, as soon as Apple opened up the app store that, that changed everything that the, the floodgates opened then for for um for indie developers the the 70 30 model where like the developer gets 70 percent and the publisher and platform holder gets 30 uh, percent like Apple pioneered that um, Steam changed to match that. Uh, pretty much every platform matches has, has matched that. Like that made like overnight millionaires uh, out of a lot of indie developers. I guess with Java, you know, you you made one version and it got pumped out to everything, rather than making an Android version or an iPhone version or an iPad version. Oh, quite the opposite, actually. Yeah, like so, every phone back then had a different uh, a different flavor of of running Java. Each one had a different resolution. Each handset just had different things. Like, so if I made an iPhone game now, I'm going to make it work on six models of iPhone or, and an iPad. Um, you make it work on Android, you got to make it work in a couple of flavors of Android. And there's always going to be bugs uh, across Android because there is so many SKUs of it. But with the Java days, like sometimes you have to make like 300 separate, like, separate versions of a game just to work on all the handsets. Wow. Uh, <laughs> so and, it wasn't and, scalable at all? <laughs> no, like they, they, they couldn't do anything like the technology of the phones, like the the, the, the apps that like, were so small, you couldn't, uh, they couldn't in real time scale art down. So like sometimes I'd be working on um, a screen that might be 128 by 128 pixels. And then the next the next version of it might be like, uh, you know, say 200 by 150 years. So I'd have to completely redraw the art bigger to kind of fit the canvas. Um, 
so like it was heartbreaking sometimes because you start off with like really nice art and then by the time you get to the you get them all the lowest level uh, versions of the phones you've already crunched all the colors of your graphic scaled them down by half had to redraw them to the point that like a like an interesting sort of like street fighter uh, two sort of style character it looks like a stick man at the very end like so it was it was, uh, it was grueling but it, it taught me how to uh how to work economically so when we're all playing on our uh, N-Gages back in the day, we had no idea the amount of work that went into those games. <laughs> yeah, I, li- I like the N-Gage despite its, uh, its massive flaws. I've actually uh, been tempted to get one recently off eBay, yeah. The, the, uh, the King of Fighters on it was great. Mm. Um, like the frame rate was terrible and all that, but I enjoyed the hell out of it. It didn't work as a phone, but the, <laughs> the, the games worked on it. Yeah, it felt stupid holding that to you walking down the street. Yeah, it was pretty bad, all right. And it was amazing how people would just accept, like, they'd be playing really nice games on their 16-bit machine at home or 32-bit, and then they'd get to their phone and it'd be Snake, and they're, like, totally accepting of that. It's fine, because I can play on the move. You know? mm. Yeah, the, uh, but then the Engage came along and they, they didn't accept the um, the compromises you had to make to kind of get that sort of, a console inverted commas experience experience on a phone well we've um, talked a bit about like the games that influenced you growing up and it, particularly those early arcade titles but really i mean it seems like adventure games in particular point and click adventure games have kind of become your your main thing i mean what is it about the the point and click genre that you like so much i think it complements the three of us as a team at the moment really well um i think that's pretty one of the main focuses of why we work in adventure games it's like adventure games have a very compared to the rest of the games industry they have, they have a relatively small audience so you're never going to make it make a big uh, out of uh, an adventure game like even Thimbleweed Park like hasn't broken a, like 100,000 copies sold or any of that but like we we really like the like I like the way the audience embraces uh, pixel art uh, so willingly I like that dials the speed of an experience back down like we all like really like the, the the fact that like violence isn't really part of it. Like don't, don't get me wrong, I love I love my shooters and I love my um you know love my sort of you know action adventure games, but I do also like kind of finding like an alternative route in video games and uh, with adventure games you generally you, you don't solve a situation with a gun, you solve it with you know a rubber chicken and a piece of string. As well as that, like um game kind of came around as a bit of an accident, but it kind of grew really well because of just of the team that came, of, that came together um, like the, the initial four screen demo that kind of kicked it off I like, came together in a game jam uh, myself and a buddy made it in about eight hours it was this terrible little demo that like really didn't make sense you know the puzzle didn't particularly work at the end of it but we kind of nailed a bit of character and, and our audience or the people online when we posted it like really sort of liked what we were doing and liked the demo um, but then we got a really good writer working with us uh, Dave McCabe and he helped turn it around. Like his his sense of humor, uh, his writing style, his design skills came across so well into it, and um, it just it really complemented what we we're doing. Uh, and Tracy came on board to be the coder as well, and you know she's found like nice, interesting ways to kind of s- streamline the whole development experience for us. And the way we've designed Darkside as well by stripping back a lot of like how adventure games work by removing movement, by removing dialogue, it made a very quick fire. Right, well, sorry, removing voiceover and made kind of the dialogue very quick for it. It's been a very sort of uh, quick and easy experience for us developing. Like, so for a small team working on our spare time, it really suited us. Well, we are talking about the Dark Side Detective. Um, so, where did kind of the, the story come from and what was it? Um, did he have like any influences? Was it based on any kind of older games? Um, well, the main influences for it come from like 80s and 90s pop culture. I mean, the, the game, the, the first half of the game definitely leans on, like, sort of references and it kind of eventually kind of grows more into its own thing as you play through it. Um, but, like, when we were making it, we just kind of wanted to make something that was kind of, you know, spooky and occulty and sort of feel like, you know, feels like the X-Files meets Twin Peaks. That's, it's, that's kind of where its initial sort of premise came from. I think, we, you know, we learned kind of, we learned the kind of jokes and world we wanted to make from, like, old old movies and tv and even british tv british comedies like back back Adder and stuff like that like that kind of those character dynamics um but then we kind of learned how to you know, deliver the punchlines and how to kind of you know design the experience like that that was all influenced from from older point of clicks so why did you decide to go with the like retro style low resolution pixel graphics for it then rather than like you know some high definition graphics uh, th- that kind of came about because it was born in the game jam when we we were running the game jam, we had very little time to to make the game. 
so quite literally i just fe- uh, said right let's let's work with a really small base resolution i think like it's like hun- it started out as like 140 pixels by 90 pixels really small at that and then you know i scaled it up and started adding these kind of hd color effects over the, the really basic pixel art and i kind of just sort of landed in this sort of very comfortable zone of being you know one foot in the past and one foot in the present and it, it kind of add a sort of a, a layer of like polish to kind of an otherwise basic experience. Uh, and when we put that online, we just got this really positive reaction to it. People like really liked what they were doing. Pe- people people saw the old games in it, but still felt like them still felt they were getting a modern experience. Um, so it's like genuinely that's where it came from. And uh, it, it, the art has evolved somewhat as we've throughout the years as we worked on it. Like we've really worked with the balance of our our color palette uh, to make it a lot more subtle. Um, really learned how to play with the space on screen, um, but like gen- genuinely, the low resolution style comes from literally having no time to work on it um, when we're making the demo. Have you took inspiration from any other artists or sources or anything? I think Mark Ferrari was a big ins- inspiration on me. Basically, more so in terms of like uh, some things he teaches or some some of the, his his ideas about how, how art works, rather than copying his style or anything like that. Uh, like so, Mark Ferrari, like he was like one of the the main artists at Lucas Arts for a long time. Um, he, like he'd done like Monkey Islands and like a lot of games. Um, but he has he's, like certain practices he took. Like so, uh, like a very good example is like he um, in one of the talks he gave, he he said, uh, you know, he always colored the sky of a scene first, so let, you let that color of the sky influence the color of the rest of the scene. And you see that in Dark Side, like the the color of you know, of the main background area or sky will always influence the, the general overall color of, of the scene. Well, do you prefer 2D or 3D graphics? I, what I do like is I like quick graphics. I like to turn things out quickly. I don't like to get um, bored with something. Um, so, like when you work in 100 games, like I've done, it's usually because you're you're doing quick turnover. Um, like I've learned how to like shortcut straight to my my career, how to work fast usually I'd like to be able to, whatever asset I'm working on, I'd like to be able to get it done in an hour or two rather than spend a lot of time on it. 3D graphics can tend to be more laborious because of the multiple stages of it, like in terms of like building it, unwrapping it, texturing it. Um, and that's only on a basic level. There's much more advanced s- stages on it. So I'd say with that in mind, I'd probably prefer 2D. With 3D, I do like kind of low-res styles in 3D because you can get very interesting uh, and very stylized art done very quickly if you just sort of focus on the right things. Was it a bit of a risk kind of doing a retro style point and click adventure these days? Uh, yes, it is. Um, I mean, if if I if we made it a like right now we started a new adventure game, I'd we'd have to really question if we wanted to go to, to a retro style. One of the benefits we had with the dark side detective style was it was so simple to work with that we could do. Uh, quick turnout uh, of graphics to kind of keep the game interesting online while we were developing it. So, like, whenever an event was happening, like, um, you know, Donut Day or, you know, when the Face app, app was very popular, like, we were able to do jo- jokes about that by getting graphics out really quickly. So, like, the, the simple style benefited us now, but, you know, not there's a bit of pixel art backlash these days. A lot of the audience is, uh, is a little bit jaded with it. So you, just because you're you're making the classic art style doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get appreciated for it. Do you think it's been a bit of an overkill? Is that why? Yeah, I think so. Like, I mean, I think we're doing it for the right reasons ourselves. Mm. It, it suits what we're doing, but it shouldn't be your automatic choice to do art as pixel art unless it's, you know, it really is the right choice for your game. But what kind of challenges did you encounter when making the game? Uh, designing the game um, was, was a big one. Like the, the game has gone through several iterations of design. Um, so I don't know if you're listening there, so played it or not, but the game is broken up into these six sort of mini investigations or, or nine investigations when you open the, the bonus cases. And so they're all like these sort of small, tidy little experiences. The problem is that like when we design them, we design them on paper um, and it usually comes from an idea of like, here's a situation we think we'd like them in. Here's a location we'd like them in. We build it, build it out from that. Like Dave and Tracy do most of the design. So they'll they'll go off, come up with a, a loose script if we all like it, um, then they'll design out a white boxed version of it to find out like the general sort of puzzles. And then we'll build it like in the most basic way and then we'll play it. And then usually we'll find that it's terrible and have to sort of tinker around, push bits around, um, try to remove the tedium. Because one of the dark sides of the main design tenants was 
that it had to be a very streamlined experience. So we didn't want any tediousness in there. We wanted it all to be very quick. We wanted to sort of the casual point-and-click experience. So, um, so same amount of content as any other adventure game, but you're just going to get it quicker. So then we, you know, we'd with that in mind, we'd find like, sometimes it take too many clicks to get around, or um, it might just take that little bit too long to find uh, a solution to a puzzle, and it just sort of adds to the boredom. So it's like there's been many times you kind of got to this sort of white box stage, redesigned it, and if you couldn't find a solution, the whole idea would be scrapped. Uh, if you found a solution, we'd flesh it out more, find other problems, then have to sort of retinker again and again just to kind of keep the flow going. Well, I guess the uh, fact that you were such a fan of those, you know, original point and click games back in the day probably meant that you kind of saw design elements of those games that you didn't like or didn't really work and could improve on those. You know, I think I think the difference was is is relevance. See, see, back back when we first got original adventure games, it was like you, you'd probably get the game and you wouldn't have another game for several months. Uh, you might just be literally just have that game sitting there for six months. Um, so you had the time to invest in it and discover it. And you didn't have the internet to go off and find a solution. You might have to go talk to your buddies who are playing it, or you might eventually find some sort of portion of a walkthrough in a magazine. Um, but like you had the time to invest in it. Like a single game experience probably meant more back uh, in the 80s and 90s than it does now. These days, a video game is a lot more disposable. Where if you don't like the game, you'll quickly go online, find a walkthrough. Or if you don't want to do that, you might just find something else that you have queued in Steam. Of like that you got in a bundle there recently. Our design philosophy was that we wanted you to be able to drop in, drop out a game uh, as often as possible. And it wasn't something that... that it, that if you got you could get bored too quickly and then drop. So like even breaking up the story into six separate stories, that was part of that is um, you play the game, you get a win, like you're able to solve the case uh, within like you know within an hour, and then you're able to put the game down for two weeks and you pick it up again and you don't have to remember why you have a monkey wrench or why do you have you know a, a ball of rubber bands or something like that. Like you 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 just it's a fresh experience. Then you're able to sit down and have a win and put it down. Um, now what we discovered is that most people like to play it straight through like people would clear the game in a night or two but we've had a lot of users who've like, spent several weeks playing it like um, a lot of, even we've a lot of people who've played it with their kids um, who played one case a night with their kids uh, uh, like they got to really enjoy it like sharing the experience it was kind of like you know the bedtime story was to solve a dark side case so were you pleased with the reaction when the game came out we were yeah it's um when we launched the game, the very, uh, the very first, uh, the minute the game launched, the first review that landed as soon as the embargo was over was from Destructoid. Um, so a very big site, a very respected website. And they hated the game. They, they gave us like a 5 and 5 out of 10. And the reviewer like literally just, I, th- I think he, he hated us as much as he hated the game. Um, he, he had complete disdain for everything. Like, even his review had all the names of the areas and characters in the game wrong. He just like despised it. And it broke our heart. We thought like, oh no, we spent two years making this game and here it is, like every review is gonna come out and uh, you know, everybody's gonna hate it. And, um, but then, uh, like we spent a lot of time building up an audience online. So we had a lot of people waiting for the game to come out. So over the next 24 hours, all these other reviews started coming out. We started getting like seven, eights and nines out of 10. So getting these really positive kind of reviews. So I get lots of user reviews. I think we've like the 400 plus reviews on Steam. Lots of people tweeting at us. Like lots of people really, really liked what we've done. Like so, we we went from like this, like uh, pit of despair to like suddenly being elated that we, you know, we, you know, our audience weren't let down. And genuinely, like, we we such a great audience. Like um, our Discord is full of such a, such nice people. Like we we adventure games don't sort of um, don't attract kind of like the, the gamer bro sort of uh, culture like it's genuinely just really nice people um, everyone sort of is, is more homely and pleasant I suppose you could say it, as well as that one of the core pa- parts of our game is just a friendship with the two characters like you know one's an idiot and one's the more savvy detective but at the core of it like they're two people who, like, who care about each other and they have like they've grown up together and people really responded to that like sort of a wholesome thing that we put in there that might make the game seem nerdy was actually a really positive thing for our audience. Uh, so people like took to what we were doing really well. Well, it does seem in recent years that point-and-click games have had um, a resurgence recently. What, why do you think that is? I, you know, I just 
there's many, many, many reasons for that. Like, there's, there's lots of different opinions. Um, number one is that adventure games never really did die. There was always some audience there for it. It's just like the driving force of the industry moved ahead. So there was just people still there playing adventure games in the background and making them. But then you have like uh, uh, Dave Gilbert from Wadjadai. Like he kind of like held the torch for a long time making games in the background. Like he discovered the audience was there. I think another one is that there's a lot of people now have, um, it's also like a lot of people hitting their 30s and their 40s. Um, so people who played adventure games in the 90s as kids have gotten have, have gotten like all the action adventure stuff out of their system and are now just slowing down and, uh, you know, are having more relaxed evenings in rather than, uh, you know, the, wanting to like, go online and play competitively. Like they're kind of rediscovering kind of the, a more uh, more gentler or considered experience. Yeah, I think you're right there as well because it's um, it's kind of like rediscovering an old friend, isn't it? When you you go back to the point and click adventure games, it is. It's it's like um, when you read fantasy novels. Um, the you know every one of them has the wizards and orcs and elves, but it's kind of like uh, slipping into a comfortable pair of old shoes. Like it's you just kind of it you know it feels right. And it's kind of like a personal experience. And as you mentioned with online. Uh, you know, that's a big multiplayer experience and kind of going from that, uh, you know, you lose all the pressure and you can do it at your own pace. Oh, for sure. Uh, and it's and it's a very shareable experience as well. Like um, you can play an adventure game with people because like it's not about who has control of it. It's about like thinking about what to do next. So like a lot of, a lot of couples play game, like adventure games together um, these days. Um so I think that's one of those sort of things. It's, like it's an easy, it's an easily shared experience. Just sit back on the couch if it's if it's on a console or play on a laptop and just like sort of you know cuddling together and just kind of try and figure out the solution uh, among yourselves. Well, do you think Thimbleweed Park was a good vote of confidence in the genre? Because that obviously got a lot of press, didn't it, and attention? Yeah, I think uh, um, even Tim Schafer's uh, uh, Broken Age, Broken Age, that was called. Yeah, um, like that was the mega, like that was the mega beacon, sort of to say, like you know these games are cool. And I think Timberweed Park saying they're cool, but they can be old school as well was 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 a major factor. If it wasn't for Timberweed Park, I don't know whether we would have had half the success we've had because um, we had people rediscovering the genre, but also being able to kind of revisit like, the the more uh, retro aspects of the genre. And that humour that was in there, that was like yeah, classic Ron Gilbert. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, um, and you know, one thing about adventure games uh, for a long time is that, like, for example, a lot of the Wadjadai games are, are very serious. So not a lot of adventure games tend to be very funny. And that was, I think that was something that was missing from the genre for a long time. So I think Timberweed coming, uh, coming back with, 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 with humor was a, was a big one. And it also helped us as well, because, you know, we have a very funny writer. And uh, we, our game isn't, isn't essentially sort of selling like a big experience, but it's selling a very humorous one. Well, what aspects of the Dark Side Detective are you most proud of? I, I really like what we did with the the streamlining of the design. Um, we, we, I, I know it's not for everybody. Some people still believe the character should walk around, but like we kind of got annoyed by games like where you click on something and the character has to kind of donder across the screen for like three seconds to eventually tell you that it's just a lamp. Like being able to just kind of just pull it out. Um, in fact, like uh, Dave Gilbert, the Wajdai's Unavowed is going to introduce sort of similar things to that now, like where the characters don't wander around the scene to look at objects anymore. They actually click and they sort of like... Uh, discuss what it is um like but we pulled all of that back we kind of wanted to make that sort of quick fire experience um like almost make it feel like you know when you're reading a comic where, you, where your eyes are just sort of uh jumping across the panels really quickly it kind of feels like that to me also being able to, like, to make it casual and sort of fit more into your lives uh like i i don't know what age you guys are but like i'm, I'm in my late 30s like and i don't have the time to play as much video games as i used to so i've been able to uh, develop an experience that's kind of designed to fit into uh, you know time starved adults lives is is kind of rewarding because like, you know i only get to play games you know after i get my son to bed in the evening or you know maybe on the commute or something like that um so designing to that philosophy of like streamlining the experience and making it that fits more easily into an, into an adult's life uh was kind of a big factor for us and i think we, i think we've done well i think we're, we've been rewarded for it 
Yeah, I think the days of uh, you know playing 18 hours worth of games on a, on, a, on a Saturday or in the summer holidays are long gone for a lot of us, aren't they? I'd be, I'd be looking to get 18 minutes. Yeah. Well, um, when the show comes out on Friday morning, uh, your Kickstarter actually ends today. So, I mean, there might still be time for people to get involved if, uh, if you listen to the show nice and early. And the Dark Side Detective uh, Season 2 as well is um, the, the thing you've got on Kickstarter right now. Um, so, so what's going to be new in this and what, what's, um, what's the aim of this one? Um, the, the aim of it is to... Uh, well, ultimately, number one, bring back the characters. The the, the format we kind of followed with, like the broken up cases, uh, fits really well. With, like the sort of the TV episode kind of monster of the week thing that we we've kind of worked into the game. Um, so, like TV series, you know, there tends to be a series one and a series two. So we thought, like, yeah, we could we could make more dark side, and we had an audience that seemed to want it. Also, like we we've gotten better at design in the cases. So all of the failings that we we personally see in season one. We like we, we want to sort of just be able to sort of build that stronger, much uh, more cohesive experience in, in season two. Um, we have kind of a, a loose arc in mind for for season two. Like we've always had this sort of three season arc in mind and had this kind of loose sort of sort of story that goes through all of them. Um, and small elements have been alluded to it in season one already. But so we want to kind of continue that and try and fill in that kind of part of the story. Well, are there any old kind of retro games that you play yourself? So it's still now to this day. Yeah, yeah, um, just, just one or something that you go back to. Yeah, I think well, one game I go back to regularly, which I think has been one of the most inspiring games for my whole life, has been Another World. Um, like I, uh, for me, like for a lot of video game art is is finding the art and the limitation. Um, and Eric Shahi at the time, he um, like he made a game which worked. At the limitations of the technology um, but it still stands out as a very striking piece of visual art now just because he chose the right colors and the right visual style by finding the limitations of of, of the technology at the time and that that still means a lot to me like I, I have a big poster over here in my office um, that the you know the image of uh, you know the lead character standing on the cliff and I just love how he, how, he, how much he achieved there and, and I love that that sense of place it has so I think like at least once a year like I might install it and play it for a bit I'm also like I like going back to classic shooters like Doom and Quake which are always something you can just drop in and drop out like without any sort of uh, you know without any thought or whatever that but I think uh, games like Another World kind of sit more kind of they sit more in my imagination yeah Another World's like on everything as well isn't it we um, I got it on the Nintendo Switch a couple of weeks ago and I went to visit my family and my brother and I were sitting up till about three in the morning just trying to do that bit, you know, where you need to burst the water and jump over yeah. those little bits. Must have retried it about 50 times until we eventually cracked yeah. it. It's, it's cruel. Like, that, that's a, even, even that's one of the things I like, give with Dark Side Detective. Like, we, we have designed the game to work for a modern audience because, like, games back then were, were grueling. Like, when you were a child playing it, it, it was possible to, like, spend, like, you know, 20 hours getting past the water part. Yeah. Um, and it was the only game you had. So, like, what else were you going to do? But these days, like, you know, it's just, you know, you wouldn't, you'd be like, ah, oh, screw that, I'm going to load up another game. Um, but, you know, I've I, I played the game so much, I think I have, to have, to have those sort of things down as nearly reflex memory at this point. But yeah, uh, old games were not kind. Well, Paul, if people want to read more about your experiences, you are actually a contributor to the um, the Art of Point and Click Adventure Games book. Yeah, it was really nice. Uh, like Sam Dyer, who who runs Bitmac book, Bit Books, uh, he's, a, he's a really nice guy, and... Um, I hadn't met him before or spoken to him before the book was in development um, but just kind of one of those sort of timely things where like we launched Dark Side and kind of became like a, a relatively well-known adventure game was about the time when he was starting to work on the book so he reached out to us and um, and asked if we, if we wouldn't mind having the game featured in the in the section about modern adventure games so it was really nice kind of doing up an interview uh, he had some interesting questions um, about you know about, about the artistic process and just you know adventure games in general and it's, it's it's a pleasure to see in the book, in a, you know, just seeing your art in a book. And um, I also I was asked myself personally to do the the artwork for the special edition cover, the collector's edition cover. Oh, nice! Which was really nice. Yeah, like um, he, he had a plan of what he wanted, and uh, but like it's really charming being able to kind of you know turn pixel art into sort of into printed graphics. Well, if people want to check out the book, they can um, either win or buy a copy on our website, theretrohour.com. Uh, Paul, good luck with um, Dark Side Detective Series 2. Thank you very much. And uh, if people want to get your games and find out more, do you have a website or anything they can go to? Um, best place to go right now is the Dark Side Detective, or sorry, darksidedetective.com. Uh, or else you can find us on Twitter at DS underscore detective or just Dark Side Detective on Facebook. Excellent. Well, thank you for coming on this week, Paul. It's been great talking to you. 
Thank you very much, guys. See ya. Cheers. And thank you for checking out this week's episode of the Retro Hour podcast as we do Adventure Month with the Art of Point and Click Adventure Games, the new wonderful book from our friends at Bitmap Books. And if you head to theretrohour.com this week, you can get a look at this book, also have a chance to buy it, or enter our exclusive competition to win a signed copy of the book, signed by creative director and founder of Bitmap Books, Sam Dyer. And we'll see you next Friday.